Okay. Hey, welcome to you talking with Greg. Uh, I'm here joined by Zevi Slavin. Uh, although I don't know Zevi for a long period of time, we've had a, a really excellent conversation up on his list. Um, and I've listened on, his, on Seekers of Unity. Uh, I've listened to him uh, talk with John Verbeke, Guy Senstock. Uh, he's a real brilliant fellow traveler in the space. Zevi, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's so much fun to be here. It was really great to have you over on my show, and it's great to be back here. The, the way that these conversations are evolving organically and taking their life and shape is just really exciting to be a part of. So thank you for extending the conversation, and I'm psyched, I'm psyched to be here with you, Greg. Great, man. Um, it's wonderful to have you here. Uh, I've been, you've been in my head a little bit because I've been listening to the Dialogos that you and John and Guy have been having about uh, Martin Buber and I-Thou relations and other kinds of things. But uh, my hope today is we just sort of start off with your narrative. You have such a fascinating life story that sort of winded you into mysticism and seekers of unity. Uh, I wonder if you could just introduce yourself a little bit and share some of that narrative with uh, the crowd here. Yeah, of course. Yeah, with pleasure. I, I would love to share that. I think it's I think it's also really cool to that we frame it as a narrative, right? That we it's not we're not sharing facts or or history, even though those are being narratives too. But it's one particular telling of a story that can be told so many ways. And Amen. so we we try we try not to make ourselves limited to our narratives, but also try to express ourselves each time in new through our narratives. And that's a very fun thing to be doing. It's, it's part of so, my nature as a trained as a clinician. I definitely frame the sort of the egoic narrative as, as the starting point of the way at least I connect and get to know to people. So, yeah, absolutely. And, I, and if there's any particular questions that you have on any particular aspects of the narrative that you're interested in me getting into more or changing the narrative, we can, I'm, my, my narrative is it's flexible and it's open to. It's always evolving, isn't it? <laughs> absolutely. In every uh, moment. Um, all right. So, I was born in Sydney, Australia. My dad's hmm. American, which is why my accent is not fully Australian. I was born into a Hasidic family. My parents were sent to Sydney, actually, by the seventh Chabad Rebbe on oh. a religious mission to bring Jews closer back to Judaism. So I was raised in a very, very staunchly Orthodox Hasidic hmm. practicing Jewish home hmm. and family, uh, which was a very beautiful experience to be grounded so hmm. deeply in such an ancient and beautiful tradition. Hmm. Um, the You know, there's a certain... There's a certain adolescent tendency to, to stop taking things that you were taught for as a child for granted and begin sure. to want to explore them on your own. Mm -hmm. And that definitely happened to me going through my 15, 16, 17. And I began to explore other religions, other traditions. And instead of discovering in them the proverbial other, that was mm -hmm. the enemy of what I'd been taught, I ended up finding a lot of similarity and a lot of really strong kinship between mm. the deepest thoughts of other traditions and my own tradition mm. which was definitely a very weird thing sometimes we're we're trained we're, we're, we're used to finding otherness and strangeness and that's more comfortable because we know who we are we know who they are when you find deep commonality and similarity with what you thought was other that was a really trippy experience and it was definitely. all very cerebral very intellectual lots of reading lots of studying much in, in similar way, to ways that you that you've narrativized your journey in that sense and finding this common underlying theme. Can, you, can know, I pause and, you there for just please, a sec? Because I please do, give yes. us a little bit more or give me a little bit more of the flavor of your community. Like how large was it? Were you isolated? Was it, you know, um, so I'm just trying to get a flavor of what a Hasidic community might look like in Australia. Yeah. Yeah. So a Hasidic community is an interesting beast and they're not, they're not all the same. They're, they're different sorts. Generally, generally I, should, I thought always those them people were always the same. 
right? The, the other, the other is, is homogenized. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's really great to, to meet what we thought to be other and to find particularity, to find individuality, to find difference. There's a lot of beauty in that. Uh, and I'm also really feel really privileged to be able to share my world, which is a, which is a larger other to people and to, to show it, to open it up to people. So the Hasidic community, there are many forms of Hasidism alive today, many different dynasties and streams that emerge out of Eastern Europe, um, beginning roughly in the, in the, in the 18th century. Um, and the, the particular movement that I belong to is less insular by design than the others. It's known as the Chabad movement or the Lubavitch movement, where there's a lot of emphasis, particularly in the last generation or two of the movement, from, from the leadership, from the rabbi, as the term is used, mm-hmm. to turn the movement outwards, to go mm-hmm. to missionize to other Jews, to bring them back mm-hmm. closer to their, to their heritage. Mm-hmm. So out of all the Hasidic movements, the Chabad movement is the most engaged with modern technology and reaching out to people through mm-hmm. all kinds of means. The first okay. ever was the first to use the radio and TV and internet mm-hmm. to, to reach out to people. So while it's still very strong and very strict about its own adherence and practices, there is a sense of integration with the outside world. Gotcha. And I wasn't, the, the community that I lived in wasn't um, an isolated uh, world onto itself like the mm-hmm. communities in Borough Park or Williamsburg or in Jerusalem mm. in Manish Arm. It was a community that was specifically there to service and to be there for, right. for the wider Jewish and non-Jewish communities as well. My parents are involved in a lot of humanitarian work, um, whether that's, and that's not just to, to the Jewish community, that's to the Sydney community um, at, as a whole. So there was, there was a sense of having my identity um, as belonging to this very beautiful and arcane tradition and being on a purpose, being on a mission to share this message with others. There was very much this, this sense that, um, that, that my life was, was, was filled with this purpose that I'd received from my tradition to share the tradition with others. It was very, um, so in, in that sense, it was very empowering and very beautiful. On the other hand, it also did make me an other and an outsider, right? Because I'm here on this mission mm. from on high, geographically from New York to, to share with you this wisdom of the about tradition. Uh, and then going through these teenage years of discovery, it was about re-examining my own truths and my own tradition, what I had been taught, trying to find them you know, meaningful for my own, gotcha. instead of just carrying on the inertia that I'd received mm. from, from, my, from my childhood. Right. And in that process, I discovered, I really discovered like that there were mysticism in other traditions, which was really, really bizarre because, I mean, I didn't even know that there was a term mysticism. Studying Chabad Hasidot retrospectively now, I know that most scholars characterize it rightfully so, I believe, as mystical. I didn't even know that there were other f- streams of mysticism within Judaism. Uh, you know, vaguely, you, you know that there is, there was a movement of Kabbalah and this and that, but you don't really study it much at all. Right. Within Chabad, we don't even study other, we don't even study other Hasidic traditions. Huh. So we don't study the Hasidot of, of Ger, Satmar, Bavu, you know, Sans. There are so many other streams and, and that's kind of all, there's really one way and this, this is, is the highway the stream, to God yeah. and, that's, and that's it. <laughs> so this, this process of, of opening myself up to other mystical traditions to reading amazing Christian mystics and Sufis and Hindus and Buddhist thinkers and just really open myself to the full spectrum of these thinkers, um, getting into m- initially the, you know, the perennialists, Huxley and James and Underhill, and then getting more into the scholarship um, of people that are doing serious work and questioning some of these easy narratives about mysticism. So I, I spent the next few years really diving into this as a topic. A lot of early Christian mysticism was very interesting to me, the idea of the human becoming God what that means, um, what, what that theological idea means to the Christian mystics of the potential of the human, of every human to be deified. Um, mm. and, 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 then, and then looking back at my own tradition and seeing how these universal ideas 
were really there all along in the language that I'd be reading. I just didn't have the key to open them up for them to be meaningful to me. And somehow by studying the other world's religions and traditions, I received the key to, to begin to make sense of my own and slowly come back to my own uh, religious hmm. experience, theory, and practice. And, and, and most lately, there's been the aspect of, of that I feel like I've discovered something so beautiful and something so rich and something so so good that I feel compelled to, to simply share it with people. I mean, if someone comes across like just a song that just just floors them, just knocks their socks off or a piece of artwork that just right. shatters their paradigms, the, the, the natural human instinct is to share that. Right, right. Uh, Look at the light. <laughs> Look at the beauty. And that's, that's what I feel. Yeah, that's what I yeah. feel. So trying to remain like level-headed and not manic about it and not yeah. crazy, like, oh my God, you guys need to, but like to be slow and to be- I knew I could relate to you. Critical. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, so in our conversation, the, the sense that you had discovered something which was profound and beautiful and mesmerizing and you felt that you needed to share it and, and the fear and the trepidation, the whole internal struggle around sharing that is something which I very much felt with this very mm, large journey of mysticism. It's less, it's a bit less, I think, personalized than your journey was where for you, it was your discovery. Here, I feel like I'm just tapping into something which, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of humans have, have come to know through the ages, right. uh, that which cannot be said. Um, mm. And basically, well, actually, that's on... a nice that's a nice segue into yes, because I, you know, mysticism. You know, that, that seems like that could mean lots of different things. So, yeah. uh, one of the things I definitely wanted to sort of, uh, you know, unlayer the onion of mysticism, as it were, and so maybe in some way we can weave into that because I think that's a really fascinating, yeah, topic yeah, of conversation. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to I'm really happy to try and open up that word because I think that it's a word that has a lot of potential as a as as a word and as a label. I think it's a word that also has a tremendous amount of misunderstanding. There's a joke in the field that that there are as many definitions of mysticism as there are scholars of mysticism. Um, there's now a new tendency in the past oh, decade or two to reject the label as a whole. Um, and that's 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 move away from 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 universal mm -hmm. conceptions to, to particularity, which has importance. Um, I'll give you I'll give you. Actually, there's probably some parallels there with psychology in my field. Oh I'm yes, to, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Figure out what it was, and then like screw it. It's just it's a word you'll never define. As I, that's right. That's right. I think I think there are a lot of parallels here, and I think that when we when we try to define things as broad, they become sometimes a weight around our neck, and and sometimes we just want to throw them away. But, but I think the question, the, the quest that you were after of like, what is psychology and what really grounds it metaphysically, what's really going on here, for me is also very important with mysticism. And I'm not mm -hmm. willing to, to let go of the word because I think that I think that there is uh, a truth that lurks behind the word, um, which is worth hanging on to. Mm. All right. Can you share a little bit about how that unfolded yeah. and, and that journey and that I'm curious. I know what you've said in relation, but I'm really curious for us to dive into that truth. Yeah. So I think part of the challenge with articulating it is that classically one of the one of the trademarks of mysticism, and this goes back to William James and others, is that it is ineffable. It's that which cannot yeah. be spoken. And, and sometimes when it comes to defining things, um, we're less apt as as humans to to be able to give exact descriptions of a thing. But when we see it, we know it, right? right. And 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 I feel like that's often the case with mysticism. But being that we are here to talk and to use our words constructively, uh, we can talk a bit about the definitions that have been shared and, and one particular definition that I've gravitated towards because I, I think it's very helpful. The definition that's been given, um, one, one which I like a lot from Evelyn Underhill. She was a great Anglican scholar of Christian mysticism. She wrote a book called Mysticism, which is charting the, the, the journey of the individual mystic 
through the dark night of the soul, a very fascinating early work on mysticism, mm. um, a field which a lot of a lot of women scholars play an important role in, in developing, which is quite mm. interesting. Grace Jansen, Evelyn Underhill, among others. Mm -hmm. She writes that mysticism is the art of union with reality or unity with reality, the art of uniting with reality, which is which is really well worded, a really, really scholarly. Uh, it's a beautiful wording as well, but it's really carefully worded that it's an art. Um, it's about uniting and the, the, the thing which we are trying to unite with is with reality itself. Right. That's, right. that's Underhill's, that's, that's her one line. Most scholars, when they talk about mysticism today, they talk about the perceived experience of the I, individual. Actually, uh, let's yes. just pause with that because I think you're yeah. absolutely right. That just struck, I just felt that actually. I felt that definition. I hadn't heard you exactly phrase it that way and it hit me. Um, the art of uniting with reality. That's a very, very, and I, and I would think, and I learned, had to learn this because, you know, I come from the science side of the equation and everything. You hear the term mystic, it's almost the exact opposite that you can get. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like the word metaphysics. I always used to associate the word metaphysics with all this, you know, woo or whatever. Yeah. Right. And then it's like, actually, fundamentally, it's, it's the conforming of the self to reality at its most fundamental, non-dual unifying place and to do it in being itself and the art of being itself in this yeah. particular way. And that's yeah. a, that's like, talk about like that instead of going up, talk like kind of going down, you know, that's mm. amazingly cool in terms of that frame. So I just, I just wanted to hold that for a second. Cause I thought I can appreciate and taste the beauty of that. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I think I've also become so, um, we, we become immune to, to our own words sometimes. And I'm so often sharing these definitions that I don't stop to allow them to really hit me the way they did the first time. Uh -huh. um, and, and definitely when, when that, when I read that the first time, it just hit me so strong, which is why it, it, sink, it sunk itself into right. my consciousness. And, right. and I've read hundreds of definitions uh -huh. um, and, and, and the, the beauty of it and the conciseness of it. And, and that point exactly that it's not about escapism, right? I think, and I think we use these words particularly in this particular way, we talk about spirituality or a spiritual quest as something which is opposed to materiality, materialism, spirit matter. That's the original binary. And, and mysticism in, in, in Underhill's phraseology and others is not about spiritual. It's not about running away to the top of the mountain. It's about uniting. It's about coming to reality in its real, its deepest, which is why so often a lot of my work is, is actually just crusading against the overemphasis on experience, on transcendence, on, on the escape, which is part of the, of the, galaxy of mysticism but it's not it's mysticism is about coming back down it's about integrating is about getting beyond any of those binaries and separations wow um so i appreciate you stopping to 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 pay attention to that yeah mm. yeah just i guess i was tasting it like you did for the first time and i just wanted to you know to honor that so th so thank you for sharing that because it definitely uh, it hits me in a particular kind of way that that, that opens and uh pulls me uh, so that's cool it's really good. I'm really glad to hear. Yeah, the second definition, which which I like to share, following Underhill's, yeah. is more from a more recent scholar, um, which is which is slightly less poetic, but a bit more fleshed out and really uh -huh. encapsulates the field well. I think. Uh -huh. um, so this is from Peter Moore, um, M W R E. He writes that mysticism is is three things. He says he says bracketing two other things, which is the ontological claim and the sociological uh, sort of study of it. Okay. It's, the, it's these three things. It's the experience, the experiences, I should say, plural, uh -huh. theories and practices 
of unity. So unit of experiences, unit of wow. theories, and unit of practices. Huh. Um, and it's such it's such a great framing, and I'm, I'm happy to get into all of his categories. That's great. Yeah, I mean, I always talk about theory, practice, and research, and really, you know, sort of the empirical, and you can define empirical a lot of different ways, and then, you know, uh, embodied in practice, and then the theoretical, conceptual, description, explanation. It sounds immediately like there's some real parallels there, and then to you know, coalesce that bracket, the sociological and the ontological, and then bring that together. That's a, you know, that's fascinating. That's an, another beautiful definition. And the other thing, of course, that uh, you, that I saw with you that I hadn't appreciated at all, is just how foundational this issue of observer, you know, non-dual unity is with reality in a particular way in mysticism. I just said, somehow I'd missed that fact. And so here's another, you know, echo of that with more richness and facets to it in a particular kind of sort of intellectualized way. But that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's really, it's not just a good definition, it's a powerful definition in that it allows us to then examine things through that three-part rubric uh, and then and, and see it in that way. It's, it's really it's it's a powerful tool. Um and, and there's and there's a lot more details about what what are the varieties of experience, what are the varieties of theories, and what are the varieties of practices. And he splits them into a few categories, which I which I could, which we can share. But that notion that um the notion that that unity is really central that 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 the central um metaphysical epistemological and ethical proposition of the mystic across cultures and across ages is this realization of the fundamental unity interconnectedness interdependence or non-duality um constitution constitutional to reality sometimes we often speak about it as the 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 breakdown of the subject object dichotomy which is our most basic dichotomy um, the what we talk about that sometimes in terms of psychology is an ego death where the sense yep. of separate self falls away. We feel one with all of existence. There's in in Christian mysticism we talk about a term called union mystica, the, the the mystical union with the divine. In Jewish mysticism we talk about vekut is typically the term the cleaving, the clinging, the the, the uniting with God. Um, in in wow. Islam we talk about we talk about fana, we talk about fana, the annihilation which leads to baka to to standing with God. So this, so this is really, I think the, when I think about mysticism, I think about it predominantly um, as this exploration of unity, wow. uh, which is obviously where the name of the channel comes from. There are people who, there are people to be fair, scholars and historians who define mysticism otherwise. And, um, and sure. I'm, that's an ongoing conversation and I'm not trying to close out any of that, but this is simply um, where I feel guided by, by the research and by the, by the data. <laughs> Super resonant, man, in terms of, I mean, both just the disclaimer, because I always do that with psychology. You try to create a definition and then you get institutional, like who owns stuff, right? And they have to be, yeah. so I appreciate that. And it's an important, not just, it's not just a caveat, but, and at the same time, if you're going to then grab a hold and make some claim, here's the other association I was having uh, in parallel. Um, and, and so, you know, in my system, unified, obviously, <laughs> unified theory of knowledge. So I have, framed my own structure of, of exploration uh, through what I then called the problem of psychology, which is, hey, you can't define this. And then backed up recently, and so is the unified theory of psychology and it becomes unified theory of knowledge. And that I made the shift with, actually with modernity, you get what I call label the enlightenment gap, okay? Mm -hmm. So the enlightenment gap is two sides of a broken coin, <laughs> as it were. Um, one side is the mind-body problem, like in all of its facets, like what is, once we built physical science through say Galileo into Newton, then what the hell was mind in relationship to that? And we never solved that, hence our mind-body problem. Subject-object is an epistemological facet of that very complicated problem. And then 
You also have what is science relative to society, okay? And I point to the modern versus postmodern divide, and you can also go back to traditional knowledge systems to see where the hell does science fit in relationship to our customs in the past and who has authority in the future and the justice issues, okay? So the enlightenment gap is the failure for us to generate a synthetic philosophy that affords us coherence, intelligibility, comprehensiveness in relation to our knowledge systems around mind and body and science and society, okay? Leaving us fragmented and pluralistic and, and having a meaning crisis to put it in John's terms. So the idea I think is so, it's what's so enlightening to me as a scientist when I hang with you, is like, oh my God, <laughs> this gap I identified, <laughs> that's the epicenter of mysticism as you see it. So that's an unbelievable, to me, that's a fascinating intersection. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we. I think. I think as humans, we tend to create these gaps inevitably, right? And we create that gap between um, form and matter, between mind and body, between subject and object, between the particularly universal. We we create all these gaps. We we characterize. You know, one of the first acts that, according to the biblical myth, the biblical story that Adam does in the Garden of Eden is he begins to name things. He begins to give categories and, and distinctions. In the beginning, there was the word or the logos. That's yes. right. That's right. And 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 as, as important as, as the word is, and, and the same way that the word can unite, we also create these gaps, these separations. And I think I think that the, the mystic has this like almost childlike realization that, wow, all of these characterizations and all of these gaps and all these separations are really secondary, are really just constructed. They're really just overlaid on a reality, which is one huge teeming buzzing organism that is entirely interconnected um, and 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 once we can get into the non-distinction that really lies at the core of things and sometimes that's done you know metaphysically and ontologically looking at how being is that which unites all sometimes it's done more scientifically and organistically looking at the systems of things how they all are interchanged sometimes it's done through a linguistic analysis of seeing how words themselves are and what what we what we find is that that things are really really deeply related and the only difference is one of one of you know gradation there's one of that, that between what we consider aberrant and normal there's there's a, there's a million shades to get us there and therefore to, mm. to create any real gap it's like oh here is one thing and here is another thing and they're totally ontologically split from one another um i think i think that's the basic realization of mystic is that's just that's just not what reality is right. we can we can understand that those are the, the frames that we place on reality but, but reality itself seems to them to be um, really, really one and united. Uh, and then there's and then there's what we talk about as the mystical experience or the peak experience or mm. the altered state of consciousness, where one actually has the deepest sense of that's of oh, like that's reality. Right. And um, and I think that's a really strong driver to that way. Totally. Yeah, that's the, I mean, John helped me with some, John Verbeke with some language on uh, grabbing the, the self-world grip, the intuitive um, perspective that we hold that's not necessarily linguistic, but then when we enter transcendent states, uh, it's the evolution of that grip in a particular way that then transforms the interrelations of our understanding and gives, and when they're revealed that way, gives this great opening of the self-other world relation uh, and then leaves people with the sense that this is, wow, ontically real at some level. This is not just some weird delusional state. I've actually reached a higher plane of understanding or conformity of understanding to reality and ultimately really dissolving almost the um, self-world relation. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think also what's really important here to mention is that one of, I think, one of the oldest truths that mysticism discovers and teaches uh, in, in many, many traditions, and this goes back actually to the etymology, uh, the, the source of the etymology of mm. the word mystic, which comes from the Greek mystikoi, which is which initially means to close, to close one's eyes or mouth, and later came to refer to the initiate of the Greek, of the Greco-Roman mystery religions. Um, mm. Initially, and this is 2,000 years before Plato and Aristotle, mm. um, the, the, the most well-known is, is the myth of Eleusis, uh, the cults of Eleusis and Dionysus, where there would be this pilgrimage to this to a sacred place. We're not exactly sure what would happen there because they were forbidden, the initiate was forbidden on punishment of death to reveal what they'd experienced. Wow. But we know that there was some sort of revelation of the divine. There was a theophany that they experienced. There was a sense that we have a letter that a historian writes back to his wife. He's like, I can't tell you what happened, but all I can tell you now is that like, I'm no longer afraid of death for I know it is just an illusion. Like that's, that's something which they, which they come to learn. And, and everyone who's anyone um, goes to these myths and they, they, they happen annually for 2000 years. The only time there's a break is during the Peloponnesian Wars. So if we, if we think about how, how central these are to society as, as a whole, to the whole you know, Western tradition, which we come from, we, we think that we come from simply, you know, the term that's thrown around, which is a strange term, is the Judeo-Christian background. But we have to think <laughs> of ourselves coming from the, you know, the Euclidean, the, the, the Eleusidian right. and Dionysian background. Um, hmm. the Polonian, like that's, that's, that's really in some sense where, where, where the society, which we find ourselves in has its, has its birth and has its roots. But what the, the real important point that we want to emphasize is that there's a sense of the need, the initiate means one who dies, goes through a liminal space where they're neither dead or alive, and then comes out of the other side reborn. And I think that's a really, really important point, which holds true today and holds true for so many traditions that there's two sides of the coin here. We begin with just our conception of self as yep. separate from the arena, separate from world, then there's some sort of death, some sort of nullification, some sort of ego, ego death. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, ego death. Um, and, and that can be through through a thousand things can, can precipitate that. Um, there's old there's theories now that what was happening back then, that there was a mix of psychedelics and, mm. and mantra and fasting and, and all sort of these psychosomatic effects to have it to, mm. to achieve that. And then what happens on the other side is a reborn, it's a rebirth, a, a new self. It comes up from the other side. And that I think that the, the mystic as the one who goes through that initiation to lose themselves so they can find the true self, I think is also really integral to the definition. And, and I think we see that in, in many, of the way, many of the ways that we frame the experience of the mystic, there's two sides. So in Islam, there's Fana followed by Baka. In Judaism, there's, there's um, Betul followed by Dveikot. And in Christianity, there's sometimes spoken of crucifixion followed by resurrection. And there's sort of this two side, the need to let go of who we are, to be reborn into who we really are, uh, that the need for for real transition, for real change, for for death of the former to, to before the rebirth of the latter. And we see in nature that the seed, the metaphor that I think the most beautiful metaphor is that the seed itself needs to rot and decay before it can sprout into something new. Beautiful. So that 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 I think that's also really central to to the idea of the mystic. And uh, the alignment of that with like the synergy between John and I and the cognitive science and unified theory uh, at a scientific level is really, really profound. Um, so, I mean, we just did the elusive eye, which is uh, with Christopher Amaestro Petro, um, who, you know, brought an existential angle. But we were talking. So John's model of the self uh, overlaps with what I would call the experiential self. This is the primate perspectival participatory part of ourselves. Um, and then he creates a cognitive science, and then there's the a whole existential aspect of that. The unified theory, the key, the first key insight that I had in 1996, provides an evolutionary structure function analysis of the ego uh, as the system of justification. 
you know, and basically with propositional knowing, what happens is we then have propositional modes of communication, which is great, but at the same time, it creates the problem of justification, which is well, what the hell is legitimate and question answer dynamics. And that becomes, that's a real network of problems <laughs> to create a, you know, that this whole system opens up. So then you build your system of justification in relationship to that. And what what we're really talking about is how that A is necessary to build to become a person. But if you actually want to transcend the narrow constraints of legitimizing and truth, and this is true because this is, you know, whatever you get socialized into, that constrained train of a child that's trying to learn concrete operations of what really is, you then actually need to wake up in relationship to that. And the layers of waking up, and I see the mystics is realizing, oh my God. It's a it's really it's a trans justificatory participatory view of the whole that drops the ego back and then rebirths the experiential self with this new perspectival, much broader perspectival frame. Uh, and I would say the number of systems that see that in the various aspects, you know, from various perspectives and various language could have that as a fundamental core. It's amazing. Yeah, what's really great about, about this whole new dynamic, these conversations that are happening, is that you know, neither of us have the the chance to study every field of human knowledge <laughs> that's ever been written. But but you have John, who's you know really, really, really cornering a lot of you know cognitive science, psychology, and you have you bringing in the world of uh, psychology, and we have other people bringing in their own traditions. What happens is we're able to then see how when we bring these things into relation to another, they begin to click and to fill in these puzzle pieces that begin to map out something much more comprehensive and complete and that's a really really exciting thing and the notion that you're speaking about now about the, the the developmental growth i think something which john really put nicely is that the same way and this is a metaphor which is used in eastern mysticism already at the same way that that there's a transition from the child to the adult and we have to go through the processes which you're speaking about uh, evolutionarily and individually so too there's the transition from from the human to the sage um, and in some sense it's coming back to the child on a new level it's aspiring yes. back at a, at a higher level um, and that's 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 a really cool thing to look at that developmentally and to see what's happening in our own cognitive and perspectival processes to, to make that transition. Um, I yeah, think, and really, I think they, really I think area. the the transformational experience is really are essentially designed that. So you get your conventional ego personhood that's justifying the world in whatever language affords their propositional know that right, and then all of the transformational stuff really is about jolting that you study stuff and then you jolt the hell out of it right john and then all yes. of a sudden that can no longer you put it in a system either through hunger or psychedelics or chanting in a in the woods somewhere or all combinations right and all of a sudden whatever that justification system is is not up to the task and you afford them the opportunity for the perspectival self-world gripping intuition to emerge and if that can collectively come together then all of a sudden what you're doing is you're pulling that perspectival knowledge into a totally different out-of-body experience, out-of-egoic experience, mm. right? And then yeah. you're like, wait a minute, and now you have a totally different transcendent, trans-justificatory perspectival shift, and then people come back, and now they're after, then the everyday life, well, how, how do I put that together? <laughs> you know, the justifier comes back online and is like, well, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's a really fascinating, but that's in terms of cultivating the capacity for a sage mentality or higher transcending, including consciousness. That's a, uh, I think that that perspective on what is actually happening from sort of a scientific analytic way is really lining up deeply with these traditions in a very exciting way. 
Yeah, I think I think it's really fascinating to think about the processes and the modalities. And I know that's something a passion of yours and John of thinking about what's what's actually going on here, evolutionarily and individually. And the, the model that you're, I think these are all models to, to play with and grapple with. I want to provide perhaps uh, an alternative way of thinking. The, the, mm. A lot of the and, and these these aren't mutually exclusive necessarily, and it could mm. be many triggers and many processes that go on here. But what I hear is that you're you're speaking more about the the disruptive processes that John likes mm-hmm. to speak about. That there's some sort of shock to the system. I think there might be another way of looking at this, mm-hmm. um, and I'm curious to hear what you think about this. Which is that instead of instead of it coming from a place of disruption or or threat to the present system, that then allows allows us to leave ourselves and to find something new, uh, where like we're escaping, you know, the burning house or the flooding ship. There might be another possibility where this the ego um, and the justifications the justification system that we employ um, as part of that is a survival mechanism, right? So that we can flourish and we can, we can know how to lie when we need to, and we cannot be eaten by the tiger and we cannot be hit by the bus. There might be, there might be a place where not a, not a place of, of, of discomfort and agitation, but a place of deep comfort and ease, a place of deep belonging where we feel comfortable to let go of ourselves and we feel safe that, that that nature, that God, however frame it, will hold us in, in its embrace when we let go of ourselves. It could be that th- that's another way where where the ego feels feels safe enough to step away from its survival needs to complete to continue to justify and to separate itself and to, to watch out for itself. But we can and maybe in psychedelics that I mean one of the triggers where we're, where we're able to just so fully release and breathe into it and from that place of ease and comfort and 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 away from the threats. That we can come to see ourselves, be like, oh wow, I really am, you know, participating at one totally. in this symbiotic relationship with the trees around me, with the people around me, with the cultures around me. They're not threats. They're not others. Not enemies. That may be another. I'm one hundred percent. Yeah, no, that's completely complementary. In fact, it would just add some language. So when you're talking about the embodied sort of sense of being present, that's a facet of the embodied experiential self. That's the, sort of that animalistic, intuitive. But it's very can be super sophisticated. There's a rich mental life of intuition here. Uh, in fact, I uh, I talk about the sort of in a platonic sense. There, there's the loins and the gut that embody you, and then the heart. And what the heart fundamentally is che- is really about is that self world relationship intuitively. And the the ground of that heart relationship is the attachment system. Okay, and the attachment system is fundamentally anchored to a sense of security versus insecurity. All right. For these to be effective transformations, you absolutely you can blow up the justification system. But ultimately, the system better get recalibrated at the secure base of the experiential self and then regrow from that. Or else, I would argue, you're probably going to have a bad transformation experience. If you stay in the matter of insecurity, you will be then surrounded by the images of hell essentially, yeah. because yeah. now all of a sudden the darkness will be all around you and your heart's going to freak the crap yeah. out. And then it's going to be like, get me out of here. <laughs> this, is, this is what we call a bad trip. A bad trip. Right. And then, yeah. and, and, and so, and so the issue absolutely is, so it's, it's pre and tra- it's a connection between the pre justificatory and trans justificatory element that is uh, coherently unified. So we're going to talk about down and up. Well, it's down and up in relationship since getting, it's like the Tao is not the Tao. It's getting away from the excessive reliance on propositional knowing, which I think modernity really, you know, overdoes. And then the capacity to then feel in the heart, down to the body, down to the ground of being itself and above in divinity, that it's that unity um, that, that, that really then when people feel the grip above and below, it's that's that transformative kind of 
experience. So yeah, yeah, I think this. I think the above and below language is very helpful, and I think this is something which we touched on earlier that that the sage and somehow um, is back to the child, right? Because there yep. is there is at least one conception of of the child, and as the child is that which is carefree, is that which does not have this fully developed sense of self or it's self conscious about how there's a scene behavior. It doesn't have. It's not overly propositionalized in relation to reality. Not overly engaging in, in justifications, theories, and systems. And in that sense, is in, in that sense, we definitely speak a lot about about the mystic, the, the 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 simplicity of the child, the innocence of the child, the the forgiving of the child is is ideals which are all held up by by many mystical traditions. The sense that also even earlier, the child in the womb is seen as the paradigm of the mm. mystic, enwombed by reality, where everything is where all the needs are met, and and it's a place of comfort and tranquility. Um, this, there's a Freudian idea. Even Freud actually would Freud actually dismisses mysticism as simply the desire to return to the womb. It's a very, you can see how Freud would get very excited about that. And um, what, what, what was termed the oceanic experience, he says it's simply the desire to go back to the womb. And in some sense in, in his cynicism there, there is some truth to that because there is, there is a sense that we have when we're born into both itself. There's some study now around this, which you probably know better than me. Both itself is quite a traumatic experience, right? You're being, you're exiting, and it's, and it's your. There's a whole new pattern of existence. You're now breathing, and there's light and sensation, and very. There's a lot of birth trauma, which has now become a hot topic. But the sense that that we that we once felt, right, when we were in the womb, that everything was somehow part of us or an extension mm-hmm. of us, or there to to protect us. There was no threats, no enemies. Everything was surrounded by us. There's the the sense that the human wants to go back to, and this this loops back to biblical narratives mm-hmm. of the return to paradise, the return to Eden, where everything is. Um, and the question then becomes, and this is something which people like Ken Wilber have studied, is what is the difference between the ba- the child, the babe, and the saint? And and he speaks about the, the pre-trans fallacy that sometimes when we think that we're going to the stage of the saint, we're really just regressing to the child. And he talks about uh, the essential difference, as far as I understand it, is that while the child is in that place of serenity and acceptance and non-egoicness, and they're not worried about their career and their image and their followers mm-hmm. and everything, mm-hmm. they, they don't necessarily have the full capacity to be present to the concerns of the other. The, the notion and, and, and relationality of the child can sometimes be underdeveloped, which is why we see children not intending to be malicious can hurt another baby or, or will take something away. And they, there's that oh. sense... Um, and so the the saint is really this, the person who was able to have all of those qualities of the child with the fully developed respect of the other, um, even being aware of the the participatory or illusory nature, however it's described, but being aware that the other has needs and wants and wants and desires and hopes and fears, just like the self. And that's that's really the process of of being the sage of being able to the the theory of mind to to know that there's someone else in existence who thinks and feels and to care for them. I think that's really the um, the sage child distinction. Hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's fundamental. The, the the recapturing of the oneness is qualitatively different once you're trans your personhood, okay, right. and pre your personhood. Um, right. And you know, we wouldn't. It's a, and it's a qualitatively different state. And the continuity and unity of that is absolutely a beautiful thing. And the mm-hmm. capacity to hold that and frame that is absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. But the idea and this Wilbur really nails this with pre and trans. There's a qualitative difference between pre. Yes. And trans, you know, yes. um, you know, on on a just a continue and want full oneness, just go straight to a rock. <laughs> the rock's unbelievably one at one level, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, so it's sort it of really like you know, it's like, yeah, that's but that's you know, if, I don't think that's the state of complexified enlightenment 
that really that and for me then the sage position is then you know creating a space of reception and broadcast function that then coordinates these higher levels of complexified systems and and that's another radical difference between babies obviously don't do that um, and that's and that's fundamentally sort of what we need so that resonance down but difference between it being down and up um, and holding that and and I think you know, yeah, I think Freud can see that from his dark psychoanalytic view, and I do think that, you know, I think that depth analysis is worth deep consideration. I think there'd be some truth to that. I think Wilbur brings a particular lens or a, a language to the pre-trans that allows us to, you know, have categories pretty quickly to access the different similarities, uh, but important, you know, line of, of wholeness so that we can discriminate. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Um, I'm actually not surprised at all that that Wilbur is someone who 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 your thought has been gravitating to, being that you're both <laughs> grand theorists. If we can, if you if you use it, if you if that's a label that I can that I can share. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's really. I think there's a very the the play between simplicity and complexity um, mm. is a really interesting one. And then I think that I think that when you look at different mystical traditions. They they tend to 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 emphasize sometimes um, one or the other, uh, and I, I can think mm. of some some examples of that. There's there's a sense of the in 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 Zen we speak a lot about the beginner's mind. There's a lot of emphasis on, on simplicity in, in Hasidic mysticism. In my own tradition, it has aspects which are very complex and very sophisticated metaphysics. And then there's also this emphasis on the beauty of the simple individual, the the Pashut Yid, who in some sense reflects. The simplicity of God. God in, in Jewish theology is called the Achtut the simple unity. Huh. So this this relationship between simplicity and complexity is an interesting one. And I think that there might be, and this is a very good guess uh, from within the field of mysticism. There's this there might be a very good place where simplicity and complexity themselves unite and are no longer oppositional. Um, that's that I would venture to 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 to, to see. That's a I, that's super resonant with my own frame. Uh, the uh, you know inside that coin I gave you, it carries a lot of symbolism. Um, one is unity, multiplicity, dialectic. Um, it, it's also the the coin itself. <laughs> there it is. Uh, so the, the, the it, on that one side, the one represents uh, you know unity, and then I quad can then you know immediately then differentiate the unity with equivalence. Uh, so that's and then it spreads out in all sorts of different ways. The actual path to that comes from what's called the equivalency, which at some point I'll explain to you. But essentially, the equivalency is a line I was able to draw through the tree of knowledge from observer to measurement um, to electromagnetic radiation, kinetic or electromagnetic radiation that creates an equivalency across all of that. And electromagnetic radiation being the most fundamental, simple energy information there is that then gets aligned with the more complexified energy information and creates an equivalency between there. And so that dialectic between fundamental simplicity and fundamental complexification in oneness and multiplicity mm. is, is exactly embedded in that structure. So when I hear that, I'm like, man, that, that, that aligns pretty close. <laughs> and in fact, that's wisdom energy. So energy being the most sort of fundamental kind of substance in the universe and wisdom being the highest complexification form of that. That the, and the content, continuity between all of that—that's a—that's a very, very strong line uh, that I uh, that, uh, that I can hear in what you're saying. Be like, man, that uh, that aligns very, very profoundly. Yeah, I think I think it's incredible that that I can make a speculation in in my own field and then think of sort of references and models of it, and then immediately there's something within your system 
uh, that lines up with that. I think that's a the token of of a of a, of a comprehensive system, um, and and also some sort of a indicator that maybe we are um, tapping close to something that that models reality um, in that in that things that I throw up and find find place in, in your system too. I think that's a very interesting. Um, I think that's a very interesting observation in and of itself. I think I think what's what's interesting though, and I like to emphasize this always when speaking about mysticism, is that um, th these three components we began with speaking about of experience, theory, and practice. Yes. Um, and and the theory the the theory there, I think, as you were mentioning, uh, in your own field, is particularly to try and make sense of what we experienced in the experience, yep. uh, which is which is tricky to sometimes to call experience. Many mystics and philosophers reject the term experience, but that's why I put it in, in air quotes. Mm -hmm. What we experience in the experience and what we know from everyday reality. And the yep. theories are there to try and bridge those two things. And what emerges in, in the metaphysics and the theology typically is what's known now um, as the great chain of being. Arthur Lovejoy, the, the father of the, the history of ideas wrote this book called The Great Chain of Being, yep. mapping this metaphysical and an idea which Wilbur is very into as well, of course. Yep. Um, so so attempting to, to, to draw a theoretical bridge between our experience and our everyday world to, to make sense of reality um, and, and and the third component is the practice. And I think this is important to mention all three. The practices are split into two by more, and rightfully so, I think. Okay. One is the practices which, which facilitate and afford us the experiences, right? Okay. We can never, we never uh, deserve or own or create the experiences, but we can make ourselves receptacles um, for those experiences to chance upon us. And they're always felt to come from a place of, of gift and grace. That's that's the phenomenology across across traditions so the experiences which allow us essentially to 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 to, to work if you want to speak about it as a scientist to, to mess with our own mental processes and states and physiology either to take it to a place of silence and quietness mm -hmm. I'm, I'm employing here some of the language from robert hood's scale of, of mysticism mm. where he charts this okay. um, scientifically either, either to a place of complete stillness and silence where we slow down the mind, we slow down the body, and in that silence, we hear that small sound of voice mm -hmm. speaking. Or he speaks about the other end of it, where we ramp things up. And this also maps on nicely to what we saying before about disruption mm -hmm. versus comfort, where we where we yep. where we put things in such overdrive that it cascades into this insight, this mm -hmm. this realization. This might map onto John's hot and cool states of flow, mm -hmm. cool to bring ourselves mm -hmm. down to. Totally. Um, and then on the other side of, of of practice is, and I think this might be actually, in my opinion, I think this is the most important part of mysticism, which is which is which is why I say it, is, is how we therefore act and live our lives in accordance with what we know and what, we, and what we've felt and what we've seen. Beautiful. How do we act with ourselves first, with those around us, with the world around us, with the people around us? And, and the basic, uh, this is a contended point, but, but to, 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 to follow this line of the thinking, the basic point, if the experience is one of unity and the theories of those which, which try to make sense of unity in relation to diversity, of complexity in relationship to simplicity, then the question is how do we act knowing that we are one with everything that we encounter and experience? And how do we treat those things? And, and, and essentially the point is that the same way that I identify with myself and therefore take care of myself and, and, and nurture myself and, and try to be kind to myself and make sure that I'm you know, well taken care of and sheltered and fed and all the basic Maslowian needs, that same imperative applies to all of existence which I encounter because I ideally, because my circle of identity is now expanded globally. Uh, and that that basically is, as far as I understand it, and there are people who disagree, that is the ethic of mysticism. Um, so that's I I I feel very compelled to share that because I think that unless the ethic is missing, right, we can get stuck 
in experience and we can turn into experienced junkies and that happens all too often we can get stuck in theory and we can we can spend our lives as as philosophers and theologians which could be fun but as well i don't know how much good that does for the world uh, we can get stuck in simply practices and, and we can we can become you know the most proficient in in yoga or breathing or whatever it is but unless we're going ahead and imply and implementing these things outwards and, and, and choosing to live lives that are grounded in kindness and compassion and care uh, then I think the rest of it is just a waste of time. Totally. No, that's 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 wonderful. I mean, I just, that's another thing I want to sit with in relation for a second, um, because to embody that is where it's at. Right. Um, and, yeah, it, it those are probably the hottest part of it. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, and right, and certainly knowing the phrenesis, you know, the wisdom of what to do when, but being, but embodying that and doing and orient one's soul spirit towards that, I, I think fundamentally is, has to be the core because that's, that's the realization, use a John term, but that's the realization of goodness, essentially, uh, at the level yeah. of, uh, you know, and, and so, and to hear the juxtaposition of practice and, and theory and experience in a particular way, um, I'm really, I'm also really, my psychotherapy side is really taking heart to that too. Um, mm. Because, um, and I'm really heartened by what we, what I struggled with so much in psychotherapy, which is so fascinating to listen to you talk about mysticism, is, you know, I got channeled into modernity. Uh, another thing I want to come back to is I think modernity this nightmarishly alienated to mysticism. <laughs> and I want to see if you agree with that, uh, <laughs> potentially. And at least that's the, uh, the backside of the 21st century. One of the healing things would be a restoration mm. of modernity and mysticism mm. that I want to propose to you. But sure. before I do that, I want to then say why I would say that in relation to my own career. Okay. So I get, um, my dad is a born again, evangelical Christian. Okay. For a while. Uh, he goes Methodist, gets born again, believes in the concrete realization of the evangelical truth of, you know, uh, son of God and, and all of that. And that then and then 10 years over a 10 year period, that shining light of the concrete reality of that fades to the point where it's like he can't justify that in relationship to what he learned scientifically and everything else. And then what happens is that, well, it all becomes, it was all a Santa Claus belief system. It was all just, and so then he turns into a Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins kind of like, oh my God, this is all just BS, right? And so I think, and my dad and I have long now, especially as I evolved, and it's like, wait a minute, how you frame religion <laughs> varies tremendously. If you frame the concrete Santa Claus version, then okay. <laughs> but not everybody does that, you know? So anyway, that's an aside, but I got then socialized into, well, science is what's true, okay? And we then go from what's propositionally true and then we'll make pragmatic decisions about what is good, all right? So then I get trained. I say, well, I'm gonna become a psychological scientist, psychological doctor. And I get dropped into a system and then see all sorts of confusion in the real world. <laughs> Because the real world's confusing and it always will be, folks. <laughs> well, it's never the logic of the of your complicated analyses ain't gonna sort out the confusion of the real world. But then because of what I was socialized into, it's like, well, I better go to science because that's what's gonna tell me the truth. But in so doing, notice what I then, and this was helpful for me in my logos path, but it's diagnostic, and this is why I got so excited in listening to you. It then basically meant, well, I'm gonna separate out my values, I'm going to separate out my embodied being, I'm going to just ask the analytical questions of truth and relation, okay? 
And that then prioritized that particular position and separated it away from embodied living and our values in a particular way. Yeah. And it essentially mirrored the success of physical science and technology and the capital production of reality and control of reality that modernity affords us and curses us with, you know? Um, and so, so anyway, but my journey in following modernity was to factor out actually the embodied real, the subjective and the values, and then try to get to some analytic proof with really not, no real connection um, to practice. And while I got lucky and was able to then come back, <laughs> the systems itself don't. And the idea of that unity is something that many psychotherapy try to aspire to, but they don't know how to. And mm. so the idea of the mystic tradition being, at least in the version that you're espousing and, and embodying, living that, it's, it's really actually, it's inspiring to me as a psychotherapist to listen to your narrative as a mystic uh, in the mystic tradition. Hmm. Wow. I really, I really appreciate that. I appreciate that deeply. That's, that's, that's very, that's very kind of you. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I, I am fascinated by, by this dichotomy um, that you're posing between modernity and mysticism. Um, and I, I, I would be curious to, to, to explore it with you. There, there is, I mean, there's a whole, modern tradition of mysticism modern not in the um cultural sense but in in the simply temporally modern right contemporary mm -hmm. um which which takes modernity as its enemy i mean a lot of religious mm -hmm. traditions do that a lot of a lot of my own jewish world that i belong to sees modernity um as inherently bad one of the cat one of the slogans of a large very large movement in contemporary judaism is uh, punning on an agricultural law from the Mishnah, Chadash Asur that anything is new is forbidden, hmm. according to the Torah, according to Jewish wisdom, um, and that's that's a very strong position, a position which which is not the position of my own tradition that I grew up in. Right, but outside of Judaism, there's there's a there's a fairly well known myst, mystical movement which is a branch off of perennialism, um, and they refer to themselves as the traditionalists, um, and that's people like Rene Gunon. Um, there's people like uh, Julius Evola has been more of the notorious member of that group. Mm. Um, there's um, Martin Lings and Houston Smith identifies mm. to some Ananda Swami. There's a there's a couple couple founding fathers in that in that movement. And one of their one of their one of the mainstays of their thinking is simply a rejection of modernity. Mm. That's what is old and traditional, traditional art, traditional music, traditional culture, traditional theology was good. And the modern period, uh, they see it in cosmic terms, barring a term from Hinduism, the Kali Yunga, the, 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 the dark, you know, cycle, the dark night. Um, I, I don't I don't particularly have much sympathy um, necessarily pick fights and make enemies, um, <laughs> but but I, I don't have much sympathy at all for the traditionalists um, for their thinking, um, and and I say that I say that in respect because there are these are men who who studied a lot and practiced a lot and, and were very steeped in the traditions in, in ways that I may never be, but the the assumed antipathy uh, between modernity and and, and mystical um, I think I think is a mistake. And I think that the mystics um, of the past of, and of the present of all ages and of all cultures speak about, in fact, the, the atemporality of, of, of being itself, 
which is experienced in what they refer to sometimes as the eternal now, yeah. um, the, 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 the endless present. And, and that present is not something which is experienceable or, or reachable just in some sort of traditional society pre-modernity. That, 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 that now is now too. And that now transcends time and transcends change. And therefore, definitionally, um, must be available as well. And, and if anything, um, we, can, we can, I mean, these are all just narratives. These are all just uh-huh. frameworks, uh-huh. right? Do we, do we choose to frame history as something which is moving in a, in a procession of, of totally. de- degradation? Or do we choose to see history as progressing towards something? Do we see it as the unfolding of the guys like Hegel did? Or do we see history as, as, as not going in any direction as in many yep. modern scientific and postmodern conceptions? These are, these are our choices of how we choose to see history. And the question is, which, the question for me is, uh, and this 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 is you know borrowing from someone like Richard Rorty, which conception of reality of time of history is going to be most beneficial for us living as flourishing, fulfilled human beings? Totally. Because to come to come with the with the with the hubris of saying we can tell you we can we know with certainty what the nature of time and the nature like that's that's a bit ridiculous. Yeah, ridiculous. Let's 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 relax. Totally. Um, but 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 what model can we best choose to to live with? And I think that. With modernity, uh, the reason why tr- traditionalists and traditionalism is so scared of modernity, because uh, modernity includes a lot of things. It includes the Enlightenment and modern science and the Industrial Revolution, and there's a lot of oh. things. Modernity is a, a huge category for itself. But but in in one in one sentence, to put it in, I'd be actually curious to know what you mean when you say modernity, but yep. at least one yep. way of putting it is to talk about the Nietzschean idea of the death of God, that what we took as absolutes, what we took to be the real, what we took to be ontologically sustaining reality, uh, and that's ethically, and that's morally, and metaphysically, and theologically, is now just all out the window. And this begin, this is with Descartes, who, although coming back to God, says, let's reject all propositions, let's reject yep. all the classics, all the ancients, all the scholasticism. The sense of we can we are, we are here to 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 start afresh to start new and everything from the past is gone. There's a, the the death of God, God including everything that was before us, totally. Um, totally. and and I think that's what they're so terrified of. But I think to loop back to something we were saying earlier. Thank you for for this letting, letting me go on this extended round. Oh no, that's great. The same way that developmentally the individual must die to go from being a child to being an adult and from being an adult to being a sage, so too. God must die. God meaning all our values, all our beliefs, all our conceptions, all of our metaphysics, our, our idea of God, our highest of all ideas, that has to die so that we can be reborn into a new, more complete, more adjusted, more um, relevance realizing conception of, 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 of God, of the totality of existence. And I think that's happening. I think John's talk of, you know, non-theistic theism or... Yep. Um, is that, is that his expression? Yep. Religion, mm-hmm. religion after religion. Religion, religion that's not a religion. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. These these things are these things are what modernity affords us if we allow ourselves to use this opportunity of the ashes of God to rebuild something better and kinder and more more fulfilling and more enriching for for everyone that lives on this tiny planet together. Um, and and therefore, I see modernity as a challenge. It's a challenge where a challenge of a space of of, of death of initiation where we may come to something much stronger and. You know, on some days, I'm very optimistic that we are building something more beautiful mm-hmm. together. The advantages of science and with the direction that psychology goes and with the proliferation of people trying to be mindful and aware and the and the the growth of, you know, spirituality in, in today's society um, or as positive things. And then on other days, I'm, I'm incredibly pessimistic where I see what's happening with technology and with social media and with the devastation of, of the planet and with the neglect of, of, of the self and the other. So 
it depends which day you catch me on, but but modernity, I, I don't see as something inherently good or bad. I see it as, as a challenge where the old is out the door and the question is, the question is on us. What, what is the new that we want to usher in? Beautiful. Uh, that's just, that's just, you know, put that up on a wall somewhere. That was a very nice uh, <laughs> narrative. And it spoke, you know, I, I think it resonated with virtually everything. The only slight difference is just uh, positioning our positions. Um, so I critique modernity as really being inside of it and an exemplar of it in a particular way. So when I nudge it, I'm not nudging it from the traditionalist perspective that would then, oh, get rid of it. I'm nudging it as a, as a so I'm inside, it's part of my family. <laughs> so I'm critiquing it from the inside view. And I would never, I couldn't, uh, the life I lead and everything I feel so grateful for is built on the structures of modernity, the science that I, uh, you know, uh, embrace. Uh, and so I can't look at modernity and say, oh, it's all shit, or else I would then be like the fiber of my beans and what I've able to achieve is shit. What I do see, what I really meant was there's a hole in modernity, you know, that, that I see mysticism, your version of mysticism is filling. And then that creates a completion in a particular world mm. that affords us that marriage that can turn the back half of the 21st century more likely to be the positive side of that, of your rose colored glasses than the dark colored glasses that both I, uh, my cells completely will feel from day to day or sometimes even moment to moment in sure. relationship to the, I see us on the cusp of heaven and hell uh, mm. at, at this moment. Uh, in yeah. time, in this kairos of moment in time, and why I get really energized to be like, wait a minute, I want to make sure that my practice and my little baton of energy is moving the meter to be more likely that we'll be good ancestors and turn this thing into something that's okay, as yeah. opposed to the pol potential pollution and danger of, of the threat. And, yeah. and the reason that as soon as I heard and saw the whole it was like, oh, my God, I can take Zevi's version of mysticism and put it in the hole that was in my modernity upbringing. You know, the skepticism and the criticism and the arrogance of science and, and aspects of it. You know, I bought a physicalist nihilism for a while. You know, it's like, oh, we're just fucking, you know, atoms bouncing around. And at least we can get hyper analytic studies to demonstrate that that's true. OK, I mean, I used to sort of believe that. Um and that is that is sort of the authority of when I talk about modernity and it's 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 vacuity at the level of wisdom that that is part of the authority that it asserts. There's a reductive physicalism. You'll hear me and John battle about this all the time. You come from the science angle, it's you were always bitching about reductive physicalism because that is seen inside the propositional academy as sort of the hardest nosed version of reality. Not that anybody really believes in it. <laughs> But it's seen as sort of, well, and really it's actually defined against the excesses of the traditional uh, Christian views in a Sam Harris sort of way that then frames what those things in terms of their error, the concretized versions, childlike versions that then are claimed to be error. And then you grow up and realize you grow up and it's just physics. Okay. It's like, no, actually, that's a, that growing up is a stunted development. It's actually in error and it undercuts the wisdom of the ages. And if we're actually gonna build an inclusive and transition uh, transition phase that affords us a second enlightenment, I frame my system as like, I, I love the enlightenment. <laughs> but a second enlightenment includes the developmental progression and transcends them in a Wilberian sort of way with effectiveness, with developmental growth toward the good and, and the capacity to reflect on that. So we embrace our primate selves. We embrace the word and the oral indigenous culture. 
We embrace the emergence of civilization and the great religious traditions, embrace science and what modernity did, embrace the postmodern critique of, of what it can't do, and then seek an integrated, pluralistic, holistic vision that can orient us toward the good in a sustainable, livable fashion rather than being on this cusp of, oh God, how the hell is this thing gonna go? Yeah, I really appreciate that, that perspective. And I appreciate the perspective coming from inside you know, a scientific worldview. I feel the same way. When I when I speak about mysticism, I really try very little to invoke um, anything that a contemporary scientist would have, you know, would, would raise their eyebrow at. I, I, I very rarely invoke the notion of the soul, unless I'm talking about just a, a metaphor for, for the essence of a thing or an individual. But as a metaphysical reality, I don't invoke it. I don't invoke God metaphysically in the way of some, you know, mind at large in, in terms of the God that's critiqued God that that died, I think, with 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 Nietzsche's pronouncement. Um, I, I really don't invoke any of that. What I would like to see is that if within our system of molecules in motion, if we can still come to assert to the propositions that mysticism makes, and I think that's mysticism done best. And I think we can do that. And I think very simply, the way that we do that is we think about meaning propositionally, right? Because we're in this mm -hmm. propositional cage. Yep. And we think that the answer to the universe is like 49 or something, right? And if we go can come to that, or like, or Jesus is the, the only son of God, like whatever the pronouncement, whatever the proposition is, like that is, but but if we actually think for a second, meaning is something which is experiential, right? When we're when we're when we're doing something which we feel to be meaningful, right? There's an empirical sense that what I'm doing now is meaningful. And what we need to do is we need to reverse engineer that, not ask ourselves what are the propositions which we can amount to and attain to, and we can um, profess that we are therefore in you know correct adjustment with with reality. And I have to proclaim that you know fundamental to reality is loveless and consciousness or that that god whatever whatever the proposition is from from as ancient to as modern but instead look at what are the things that we do as humans right yep. as these as these evolved primates that make us feel that we're yep. doing something which is meaningful and fulfilling and and those are are not very hard to figure out I'll, I'll give you some clues it's not when we buy a new ferrari <laughs> it's not when we get you know the, the 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 razor job and we we out we outbid we outbid our our competition it's when we're engaged in things that unite us with ourselves with our family with the world around us right when we're in communion with nature when we're tending to our children and we're and you can you can simply reduce a lot of these things to a survival you know psychology to evolutionary psychology that oh you're trained like um, Schopenhauer says that that the only reason why we engage in sex against all of our best ideals is because you know the organism wants to as a whole wants to continue to reproduce given the sort of a bit of anthropomorphic teleology to, to survival and therefore he says that the devil the devil chuckles after the act of consummation but I think that if we get beyond the criticism the cynicism of that critique we can see how all of the things which actually feel meaningful they're not they're not propositions are are things which we are engaging in getting beyond the illusion of separation and getting towards our fundamental reality of, of, of oneness and interconnectedness. And, you know, me and John had just some disagreement about whether we should then put that in, whether we should then put that into propositional language and, and the value and the dangers of doing that. But, but bracketing that conversation for a second, the sense that the sense that we don't need to make any metaphysical, any religious, any spiritual claims, we can entirely use the tools of modernity and the tools of enlightenment. Um, most of my favorite philosophers are post enlightenment philosophers and from within that space, we can we can turn to ourselves, we can turn and ask ourselves genuinely, what is it that that as humans 
feels meaningful. And this is not in some sort of absolute sense. It's not truth with a capital T. It's, it's, and then we can begin to piece together those things in our own lives and in the lives of, of, of the world, of you know, the people around us. And my, my bet is that it's going to line up with a lot of the things that mysticism has been teaching and has been espousing. And, and I think that there is a possibility of framing mysticism, which is why I think it may be fitting well here, which is entirely scientific, entirely humanistic, entirely, you know, non, you know, extraterrestrial in, in, in its propositions. Um, and, it, and, it's, and it can be worked entirely ground up. And once we have that ground up foundation, we can then look back to the world's great mystical traditions, to, to you know, the geniuses of the ages from, from, that, from, from that place and see how the words are, are coalescing and are aligning and are, are mirroring what we can discover in our, in our own modern post-enlightenment scientific, even materialistic perspective. Man. As I completely agree with that. That's unbelievably brilliantly stated. Uh, I had so many different associations. Again, I just need to pause and metabolize them, uh, but I just want to just double click on. So this is once again, yeah, this is exactly my view. I mean, it's completely. Um, so I'll come at it from the science side because I couldn't help myself get distracted a little along those lines because you mentioned evolutionary psychology. Actually, evolutionary psychology, my first scientific love when I shifted from psychotherapy. And the reason was because it afforded me a particular kind of perspective. Um, and then I abandoned it as it's in its academic form, not in its sort of like, oh, we're primates, but there's an academic form that I abandoned because it was way too narrowly um, structured uh, from my vantage point. And, and here's the kicker that comes to what my system affords, and then especially hooked up with John, is essentially exactly what you're saying. Okay. And what I mean by that is it says that the nervous system is an investment value system. Okay. It's an investment value system. Okay. And what it's trying to do, if we add an add John's frame on it, is trying to engage in recursive relevance realization for the paths of investment. Okay? And then the ground of that is pleasure in pain. This is what we call valence quality at the level of experience. And then if that's right, then the very essence of our experience is valence of good and bad you know and and if that's the case then that brings me to what zach stein would say is like it's not that the human world is absence of meaning it's drenched in meaning <laughs> we're drenched in meaning uh in a particular way um and i think that that our experience is exactly that you know it's why do people try to take heroin for the love of christ it's the worlds are drenched in meaning that they're trying to in this case trying to escape from because the insecure demon-esque uh experience of being is is brutalizing and they would rather you know um so the embodiment of experience at the subconscious i mean sub uh subjective conscious experience level is calibrated by care, in a, to use a Hegelian term, and that care then manifests in terms of evolutionary cognitive behavioral neuroscience as basically pleasure and pain, which are the mm -hmm. fundamental valence of our primate system that's telling us what's good. And the other thing I was going to say with that is like when I had my transcendent experience, uh, I've had a few, I had one back in October or whatever, where I had this wisdom energy, I had an experience where I landed on wisdom energy. Um, as, a, as a fundamental concept, was bringing this high-low together. I dropped out of propositional being, and, and I felt the metabolism of wisdom energy in my embodiment. And I wandered around the, you know, I took my dog Benji and would go for walks and would just be in the neighborhood as a microcosm of existence in the cosmos. 
you know, that just afforded. And there was every, I had the fundamental nonverbal experience of every cell in my being. This is a coherent, integrated state, you know, that affords the, the, the you know, this is a quasar, a little quasar of complexification that affords the intersection of, of potentiality in a particular light that is divine. And, and that is a, that to me, so the whole point is, yes, there's a valence organizational structure of complexification is very much oriented around this coherent integration across scale. Uh, and certainly, and then I first person experienced that thing. <laughs> so anyway, that, that to me aligns, I think of psychological science and the naturalistic ontology and then dropping into this and be like, whoa, absolutely. I mean, I'm ground up. Uh, meaning systems are basically from the inside. This is a ground up meaning system. Uh, so the idea that there is no meaning just is a, is a nonsensical assertion. Yeah, that's, I, I, there are two things that I really appreciate that you just said there, but besides for sharing your own experience, which is really beautiful. And it's really, it's really great to, to hear that, you know, resonating again with people on a, on a really deep level where they, where they see that firsthand, which is, which is really incredible. Um, beyond the propositional, the, the notion that the that the integration happens on all levels, I think, is a very true point, um, experientially, phenomenologically, and and mystically for within the mystical systems, where where there where there are these many layers of being, and on each of them there can be this unification that happens. And we could talk about you know the language in in, in psychology of the you know the different levels of self that can become integrated and connected. We can talk about the levels of society where we're able to be united within and then with our closest relatives and then with those around us, we can, we can work with that way. Metaphysically, we talk about different, you know, stages of being or levels of soul. That's, I think, just another framing onto this. And each one of them has to be united at its own level. And that's something that we can feel. We can feel that, that integration, that participation, unification, you know, running through those layers of being and then, and then uniting them to use the spatial metaphor, uniting them, you know, um, horizontally and then reuniting them vertically um, is, is, which in some sense collapses the distinctions at all between those levels where they're seen as all expressions of the same quasar. I like that, that term that you, that you use there. That's, that's one thing which is, which is, which is definitely there in, in many of the traditions. Hmm. Um, there was one, the final thing that you said, um, I, 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 had, I wanted to respond to. I can't remember what it was or what I wanted to respond to now. I mean, oh, uh, Can't remember. Do you remember what the very last thing that you said was? Um, let's see. <laughs> um, and I was talking about wisdom energy near the end, uh, and then the coherent integration. I did hit quasar. I said something about drenched in meaning through Zach Stein before. Oh that. yes, I got it. I got it. Thank you very much. Yeah, this is this is the point which I wanted to make, which is that when we talk about the the opposition between either being the world being totally vacuum and vacuous and void of meaning, right? Or being drenched in meaning. This, this, these two sides you're you're, you're putting out here. I th I think that um, I understand that what you're saying is not drenched in meaning propositionally, but drenched in meaning experientially. But when people when people hear that, I think they still think propositionally, which is why I think it's important to emphasize that from a propositional standpoint, mystical traditions will emphasize the equivalence of 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 entirely meaningless and entirely meaningful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a point which is bore very well by Buddhist philosophers, by Nagarjuna mm -hmm. and others, yeah. uh, topic which John knows more about than I do, I think, where they embrace 
uh, a real metaphysical, a real propositional meaninglessness, mm-hmm. that, that there's no reason for anything, that, that the point of existence is just existence itself doing its thing with yep. no point in mind. There's no telos at all. Right. You know, there's a, a, a famous, I think this might be from the Diamond Sutra, famous sutra where in Buddhism, where the Buddha is trying to choose the next leader, you know, after he's, he's finishing his, mm-hmm. his time uh, in his physical manifestation. And, and he has all of his like head disciples in front of him. And he's giving his last sermon. Um, and the, the sermon is he, he, he pulls out a flower and holds it up. And only one of his students says, aha, they have like this, this relevance realization to use Johnson. They have this, <laughs> this enlightenment. Uh, and, the, and obviously there's, there's many different interpretations within Buddhism, but at least one which, which particularly encapsulates this idea is the realization that, that life itself is just the blossoming of the flower. The flower blossoms for no particular reason. It just is, it just does its thing. And in the embrace of the full propositional meaninglessness of that experience, can we come to the full empirical meaningfulness of feeling of being the presence of simply that awe and beauty and grandeur and unfolding of life in the pretty and the ugly, in the grotesque and the mysterious, without needing to think of any, and I think this is a point which was which was stressed very, very repeatedly and heavily and, and eloquently by Alan Watts, mm. who, who really who really wanted to because we have this notion in, in Western society that there needs to be a reason, there needs to be a right. point. Why am I doing this? What's the point of this? What am I trying to get at? Which, is, which has its place. But embracing the, the parallel to that, which is that we're, we're totally, we're just doing this because this is the way that, that being it. itself is unfolding with no reason, no purpose. And that is such, ironically, or non-ironically, that is such a meaningful place to be experientially <laughs> right 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 exactly i love that yes i'm glad we were able to find that uh, because that certainly speaks to you know because we're stuck in this propositional capital m meaning is it there is it not there if it's there then everything has a reason or this then tells you what you ought to be and then it tells you how to view life it's like no that's not quite right and then okay well and if it's not there then everything is meaningless it's like no, <laughs> that's not quite right. It's something adjacent to that. And I think the way yeah. you just articulated that uh, potential adjacency or however we want to frame that um, is exactly resonant with it. That's the that's an interesting, the way that's wrongly framed uh, can ironically flip us into perhaps a right relational framing of that question. Yeah, yeah. Something about getting beyond this binary of, of meaningful and meaningless. Right. And the propositional... So Right, the relating to it propositionally, yeah, yeah, you know, is is it, yeah. at least especially at some sort of scripted level that then feeds back in a normal propositional sense to justify, you know, yeah, um, yeah, that's yeah. I think I think there's nothing quite as dangerous as people who really believe that they have the the propositional <laughs> meaningful truth to reality totally. and are willing to do whatever it takes to spread that message. We know that uh, <laughs> that might be the most dangerous thing. Um, who is the comedian, the comedian yeah. who says that religion may not make um, bad people do good things, but it can certainly make good people do bad things. Totally. So moving moving beyond that 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 fixation uh, with 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 a propositional meaning, uh, I think I think is going to be a very healthy step for for humanity at large. Totally, I really like you said. In fact, that you know, I begin with agnosticism at the ultimate level. You know, agnostic about the ultimate nature of reality. And it's sort of like, what the hell? And then, you know, pretty, so you have epistemic humility at one level, and then, yeah, a pretty strong statement. Anybody has fundamental, God's eye, capital T, absolute truth, eternal, and propositional the way the world is, you know, sorry, I'm out. 
for your own for your own, for your for your own health and safety, stay away from such a person. Yeah, that's that's dangerous. So I start with agnosticism, and then then I I have I'm sort of atheistic in the traditional sense of of just without belief in a like that a personal God that I can make metaphysical claims about reflecting mm-hmm. back. And then I've become uh, enamored with this term syntheism, uh, which is uh, my friend Alexander Bard coined, well, he didn't coin it, but he wrote a book on it. And it's basically, in my language, is belief in the concept of God. Um, mm. So, uh, and then, you know, particularly the God of light or, or to create, uh, in John's term, sort of a, utilize that for a divine double of what the world ought to be or what it could become or what's its potential or what would be sort of the sage, the idealized sage in relation to create that particular kind of um, is actual ought space uh, of relation uh, to then, you know, ask me questions about, hey, am I am I acting in right relation to that kind of concept? Right. Um, right. So for me, that's the way I sort of structure sort of epistemic humility into, well, actually, then there are claims there's a metaphysical one-worldness claim but that metaphysical one-worldness does require a particular kind of position wisdom mystical sage kind of position in relation and that that feels uh, to me to afford the guidance and structure um you know to uh, for being in the world yeah i think everything you just framed there which which is really what very really, really well put i appreciate the the conciseness of that formulation is very much the way that i see the mystics operating um, you know, ontologically, metaphysically, and cosm- and like, and epistemologically, where where they begin with a place of deep humility, epistemological humility, which is so important, where they acknowledge uh, and 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 continue to acknowledge throughout their intellectual careers that that all that we can know is that we don't know, right? Um, to quote both Socrates and the Zohar, um, and then there, I think their God is highly non-theistic. Uh, I think there are many formulations of mysticism which are downright atheistic. In, in the sense of rejecting the God, which is some sort of, you know, man in the clouds that can answer our claims and strike our enemies. Uh-huh. The mystics, um, by and large, have no time for such a God. Um, and then embracing some sort of idealistic proposition, as you said, of, of the unity of being. I think these are, I think the way, what you formulate is really a formulation of, of the way that I try to think through mysticism myself, beginning beginning with as few assumptions as I can and, and working ground up, working empirically and rationally to, to come to, to, to that model and to realize that even that model is just a model. And it's a model which we can employ to to because it feels right and, and, and it makes sense and and it, and it does afford ways of living that are beautiful and that are harmonious and are peaceful and are and allow us to flourish. Um, but even to remember that 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 even those propositions, you know, ultimately are just propositions and constructs, um, and which 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 is so important because it leaves room open for mystery and for wonder and for awe. I think that I think that the same way someone that can be a religious fundamentalist and dogmatic about their theism people can do that with their mysticism too they could say oh yeah I, this is my dogma and i and they can be they can be really dangerous about it. they can really, they can be obnoxious about it remaining deeply um open to 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 the fundamental mystery of reality and, and mystery exists when we're not able to pin it down there's a great line from the lebanese poet khalil gibran he says that he says that that doubt is too lonely a feeling to know that faith is its, is its twin brother. Hmm. This notion that, that the space where, where doubt and faith can interplay, where knowledge and, 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 and humility and ignorance can coexist uh, is a really rich place. And, and I hear that, I hear that from, from, from your work as well, which I, which I deeply appreciate. Hmm. Beautiful. 
Um, there was a, a, one other thing I had on my little agenda to, to at least we touch on them. I'm aware all of a sudden it's an hour and a half in. Zippy. I thought we were like, I, I didn't realize how fast this is. That's always a good sign. I'm always like, well, <laughs> time's going time flying. Um, but maybe we could at least help uh, or offer, if you would be willing to offer some narrative about where you are now and where you're headed. I'm really curious as to what it's been to build the Seekers of Unity YouTube channel. What it, what kind of the feedback that you get? What are you, who are you connecting with? So, so where are you? What's your kind of more pragmatic narrative trajectory there and that what you're offering uh, the world through, at least through the YouTube channel? Yeah, um, no, time is definitely fun. That's a great question. I, I'll tell you a bit about where, you know, where it's been till now and, and, huh? and the reception of it and things. Where it's going from now, I really have no idea, which is, which is again, embracing that mystery of, you know, where, where things go. If, if I knew where it was going, it would be, it would be, it would be boring. Yeah. Initially, so I'd spent, I'd spent time uh, initially teaching within the Orthodox Hasidic Jewish world, okay. teaching, teaching Jewish mysticism, teaching Hasidot, Kabbalah, classic Jewish texts. My background is in, is, is in Jewish, you know, thought, Jewish textuality, literacy, mm -hmm. history, um, that's that's really my bread and butter. And I was teaching that at, at different levels. I was teaching um, young adults and teenagers and, and a variety. I taught in a few countries. Um, part, part of part of the movement which I grew up in is has a very strong ideal on giving back to the community and, and going going to remote places to share. So I taught in Cape Town. I taught in Melbourne. I taught in mm. Northern Israel, all over. Um, when when I when when my thinking began to move more into a universalistic um, direction. There became a rift between what I was teaching and what I was thinking, um, and and it became it became challenging because I'm a person who values you know integrity and intellectual honesty, um, and so I, I wanted to say what I actually believed, but then I also knew that what I was believing wasn't wasn't necessarily I knew I knew the theology of the institutions that I was teaching for, and I knew that they wouldn't want those messages necessarily being shared, and and there's also therefore responsibility. Of of representing what you're what you're being paid to represent, so that was that was a, a rift growing with, within me. So when it came to adult education, that was that was easier because I could teach a class, teach you know classic sources, classic positions that I knew that the institutions would be cool with, and then I would say, okay, the like the hour is over. I'm no longer on the on the books. Uh, I'm no longer your your teacher, Rabbi. Here is me. I'm just an individual seeker now. If you want, we can talk. Um, and, and that's and that's that's the way that I split it up. When, when I was teaching um, teenagers, that was a bit more difficult because morally and legally, um, you're not allowed to tell kids uh, whatever religious things you believe if they're within a religious framework and their parents are, sure, are hoping sure. and paying and, and, and trusting you to teach them one thing. There, there, is, there, there are moral and maybe legal issues of, of teaching them otherwise. So, hmm. so these, these were challenging things and, and eventually it led to a place, to a rift where I, I really had to step away from teaching and go on my own to, to explore, to figure out what this message was. Hmm. Um, and I spent I, I spent um, a long time, um, a few a few years almost um, in a in in not a proverbial but in a literal cabin in the woods, uh, just reading, 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 and reading with very little social uh, contact, and just really trying to make sense of these things and put together a picture and put together an image of 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 reality. And I know this this is these are probably st stories and narratives which you resonate with. Um, and I had, I had I had some friends throughout the process that were really valuable resources, both socially and scholarly, um, who who know a lot more than I do, and were able to direct me and help me. And one of them was very very encouraging that I begin to teach again. Like Zevi, you must teach, you must you must share, you must go out there. And I was I was I was terrified too. I was really scared mm. to teach. 
because I wasn't, I was no longer just teaching what was the received wisdom for 3000 right. years. It was, it was new ideas with new thoughts and, and maybe I'm wrong and maybe I'm misleading people and maybe right. what I'm doing is. And so, so that was very terrifying. Um, and he, he's like, no, Zavi, do it, do it on the internet. Just start sharing. You don't need an organization, you don't need an institution. You don't need a paycheck. Just stop putting out your ideas uh, and be honest about it and, and share where you are and share, your doubts <laughs> and share that. And I, I started in the most unassuming way possible. I sat down, it was 2 a.m., video still down on the channel. It's the first video. I was wearing a pink hoodie and I just I just did a book review. William Stace, Philosophy and Mysticism. I did that only because it was one of the only books that I actually had the cover on the book around so I could show it to the camera. Uh, it happened to be that it was a good title that worked well that framed the project Philosophy and Mysticism. Uh, and I, I just spoke like unedited, unscripted to the camera for half an hour about this book. Um, and as soon as I released it, you know, shared it with some friends and family. Um, and the very first request was Zevi, no more book reviews. We want to hear your own thoughts. We want to hear your own teachings. We want to hear your own overviews. The second video was 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 my attempt to do a ten minute history of mysticism, which okay. was which which at this point I would never have been as audacious to, but I did it, and it's there, and it was a lot of fun to make. Uh, and then and then as I began releasing material, people began coming out of the woodworks saying like This is what we've been." thinking about this is what we've been this is the way we've been thinking about this is what we're interested in like and and really very quickly beginning to develop um not not an audience but a, but a community and a family mm. of people who are interested and corresponding with people who are interested and i think simply the reason is because there's so much talk there's so much available online about spirituality new age stuff and there's a lot of mysticism and astrology and all this but there's very few places that are sitting down saying let us think about these things really really in a, in a really radically critical philosophical historical scholarly way but in ways that aren't just you know scholarly intellectual right. masturbations for the sake of the sake of that but actually really embodied and in lived and asking questions of society questions of ourselves in ways that are really true to the real literature of mysticism the, the sweet spot between doing it really rigorously and really you know intellectually but also really caring about practice and outcome and embodiment and enlivenment and, and community is, is a spot which I'm finding a lot of people are really resonating with. And I, and, and I understand, I understand why that's resonating with people. Um, and, and, and the, the amount of, of, of appreciation and camaraderie and sharing and opening up from people all over the world, from Muslims, from Pakistan and huh. Jews from, 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 from all over the world and Christians from, from Australia and who knows where, and, and, and people from India, you know, literally, I mean, the internet is, is everyone and anyone. I had, there was one day where on the same day I received almost identical emails from two women. One of them was a 60 year old Episcopalian priest uh -huh. who was, would have been studying and had become more ecumenical. And she really loved the work that I was doing, looking at Eastern thought in relation to Christian theology and Jewish theology. And then the same day, a few minutes later, uh, an email from another woman, uh, a porn star who was on her own spiritual journey and had her own questions and her own experiences and also leaving, you know, her childhood faith and, and coming to right. more universal. Right. So on, on the facade, I think if you took all of the people that have come to the channel, we're about to hit um, 10,000 people as part mm -hmm. of the community, which is really exciting. If you took them all and put them in a the room, you would probably see no commonalities of people of all colors, of all races, of all genders, of all languages, but, but that, that shared quest for a real relationship with reality as yeah. as we conceive it and as we experience it in a way that's done really thoughtfully and carefully and critically um i think that really unites them all and, and, and a lot of the trajectory of leaving naive or unhelpful ways of thinking about the world whether they be scientific or religious towards a unified space uh, and it's a really i i'm i'm really like 
ever so grateful to the community and to the questions and to the, the, the thinking that I could have possibly done on my own uh, would have been so, 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 so poor in, com in comparison to, 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 to my own journey now with all these people that are, that are coming along for the ride. And where it goes, I have no idea. I, my, my intuition is that it won't stay on, on the internet forever. Mm -hmm. That it'll be, it'll be downloaded into, into some sort of physical place. Mm. Um, that's, 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 cause I think, I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking now in terms of um, creating a space, a studio for other people who are doing research and, and, mm -hmm. and creative works to come collaboratively to, mm. to create together under some mm. sort of seeker studio. That's an idea we're doing. Mm. We're moving a bit more now into, into film of going to meet people and interview people, particularly religious mm -hmm. minorities, beginning mm -hmm. with people here in Israel, a country which needs a lot of healing and a lot of, a lot of unity. Um, so, so there's a couple of cool, yeah, there's a lot of cool projects in full directions um, and where it goes only, only God knows. That's so beautiful, man. And so, you know, I, I remember as soon as I heard John Verveke describe you, uh, and John's got a, you know, I've come to trust John's antenna. I was like, oh my gosh, that guy's tracking somebody who almost certainly is a beautiful person. And uh, I think you just articulated uh, that John's got a very good sense uh, of people in the world. And so I, I think that what you have done, the richness with what you've done it, the humility with which you've undertaken it, uh, at the same time, the breadth and the seriousness with which you've done it, and at the same time, the playfulness, at the same time, embodying the goodness of being in the world. I mean, those are, um, what else can we ask for, for a sage, so. <laughs> I, I really, I really, I really, I really, really appreciate, I really appreciate that. And, and, and seeing those characteristics are all things that I really try to avoid, the seriousness and the playfulness and the expansiveness and the openness. Um, these, are, these are all things which people may think are in, are in contradiction, but they're not. They're really all come together very very beautifully and i i really can't take any credit for any of that i think that it's all thanks to to my mom primarily mm. and my dad um they they raised they raised me and my siblings in, in a place that was full of love and acceptance mm -hmm. and embrace and allowed us gave us the permission to explore and give us the permission to and i think i think when someone is, is so fully grounded and comfortable in their own home in their own space in their own mm -hmm. tradition they feel they feel the permission to go and explore and open up um and and um yeah, I, 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 I really, I really do see my parents um, as, as, as my idols, and they led a lot of my work in terms of their own, you know, um, less, less religious and philosophical, but their own humanitarian work, and their own educational work. So I take, I take no credit. It's all, it's all my mom. You can well, I appreciate that. Heritage. <laughs> uh, I don't remember if I mentioned last time. You know, my, my own heritage does go back. The name Henricus goes back to uh, Sephardic Jews in. Portugal. So I, yeah. I, I appreciate the heritage line uh, very much. And I appreciate you honoring thy mother and father and, and all of that. Um, so uh, it's a, just been a really beautiful uh, kind of articulation of where you're coming from. Uh, the resonance that I continue to feel is just really striking. Uh, the idea that there's this much resonance between the science of psychology and its practice in mysticism, all I would just say is wake up, people. The possibilities for an integrated pluralism in the back half of the 21st century uh, are very real, uh, very deep, very broad, and very, very hopeful. So um, that's super exciting. So I really appreciate you coming uh, and sharing your wisdom with us today. It's been, been really delightful. Thank you, Greg. I, I, when, when things like this happen, I share your hope. So thank you. <laughs> right. This, this moves the needle a little bit. Yes. And that's yes. All righty. Right. Okay. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah.